How is it going, everybody? I'm really excited to be here with you guys today. I don't know why that's going again. Okay, so, Jesse, we're probably going to have to figure out why the intro is playing over again here. I'm going to just pause it here, see if I can get it to stop. So, bugs will happen as we start this out. That's uh, fun to figure out, but... Uh, going to be a fun stream today. We have, unfortunately, the first loss of the season for the Montreal Canadiens, but uh, I think it was actually a pretty good tactical game, and we're going to be breaking that down with our first two guests of the year, which are Julian McKenzie and Jack Hahn, and I'm going to bring them on right now. How is it going, guys? It's going pretty well. Going pretty well. Happy to be on the stream with you, my man. Good to see you. Good to see you too, man. And uh, Jack is not going to be on video tonight. He's uh, dealing with some bad Wi-Fi in Toronto. So we're going to figure it out for next time. But we can hear Jack. He's going to contribute. And it's going to be fun. Uh, so I think the big story coming out of this game is pretty obvious. And it's kind of this, been the story for the Montreal Canadiens for the longest time now is uh, special teams. It, it's a disaster. It is a joke. And I think it's going to hurt them a lot more than their defense which is very questionable as well but uh the power i mean if you were looking to give the leafs an advantage tonight if you're if you're say that you're a biased referee which we all know everybody in every fan base thinks exists if you're a biased referee and you're on the toronto side you want to give the leafs an advantage do you give the leafs a power play or the habs a power play <laughs> jeez Oh man! Uh, look, I, I look. I think with the way the Canadians have just been playing on the power play just over the last few years, yeah, I, I would totally understand why uh, you would give the Canadians a power play for the Leafs to find a way to take advantage. The the thing that was just really disappointing with the Canadians' power play to this point is their struggles with just their zone entries. I know, like the first one in particular stands out in my head because it took them like three quarters of the man advantage before they were able to get any sustained offensive zone pressure. And then later on in the game, when they were able to do that, they just weren't able to convert on any of their chances. Uh, and the thing is, is that unlike in previous years where this power play has been so reliant on on sending bombs to Shea Weber at the point, uh, this team is supposed to have weapons that are able to, to work their way on the flanks, either make their way towards the goal line and, and get quality chances in. Uh, they weren't able to convert tonight. They had the big, the, the five on three, which in any other situation, you look at that as a, as a turning point for the Montreal Canadiens in the third period with the way that went down. The Canadiens were unable to capitalize on that. And, and ultimately, that kind of sealed their fate for, for this game. There's a lot to, there's other things you could point out as well, but definitely special teams uh, kind of rear its ugly head for the Canadiens in game one. Yeah, Jack, good. Uh... What did you notice out there tactically with the Montreal Canadiens power play? Because I think this is going to be an issue all season if we don't, if they, if they don't get it figured out. But watching them on that five on three without Shea Weber, as Julian mentioned, and still deferring to point shots, is this an organizational failure here? Is it a personnel issue? Like, what's going on? Well, um, 
like like nothing's really changed, right? Like we 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 could be talking about this last year or the year before, or really when I was with the team in, in 13, 14, um, you know, around that time, like, you know, Gao Chenyuk was kind of like that, that off wing one timer threat. And since he, since he left in 17, like there really hasn't been that right after that, it was Shea Weber, um, uh, from the left flank. But aside from that, like who's the focal point now? And I think there's, for me, um, there's a case to be made that maybe Dvorak is it because if you put him in the middle, which is the role that he played in, in Arizona, maybe he can create, but now he's on the goal line in the second unit. So he's a newer player, sure. So maybe there's something there that maybe uh, Ducharme and the other coaches could kind of figure out eventually. But I would like to see him in the middle on the first unit with the team's best players to see what he can do. Is Cole Caulfield not the obvious answer here to have him where he was firing pucks in the power play in college? Or is he just not ready to be the focal point so far. I know that I like we watched him today in this game. He had some chances, but he flubbed a lot of pucks, which was kind of an issue in the playoffs as well. Maybe feeling a little bit too much pressure, and it's just a matter of catching up to the NHL game a little bit. But is he not a big part of this power play's future? Um, for sure. I I think throughout the year, this is an opportunity to first of all give him a lot of reps and a lot of opportunities, but also to surround him with players that can take the heat off of him, right? Because if he's the only option, then for sure any half-decent PK is going to be able to shut that down. So, you know, what can we do with Suzuki to create those seams? Or what can we do with Toffoli maybe in the middle of the ice to be a secondary shooting threat or Petrie at the point or Dvorak somewhere down low? Like, certainly, I think Caulfield is by far the guy with the most upside. So it's just a matter of like, you know, he's got to be one of three options. He might be the primary one, but if we don't have a secondary threat, then you know he's going to be really frustrated, and it's going to be really frustrating to watch him. I also wonder how this team will look once Mike Hoffman is, is healthy enough to, to play with this team. This is a guy who's going to be counted on to contribute on the power play, but this is a guy who hasn't really skated all that much with the team during training camp, and, and he hasn't really been able to establish any chemistry with some of his line mates. So uh, I, I could I, we could see a situation where if he gets his bearings, maybe he could help the power play in some in some facet and by proxy be able to, you know, alleviate some pressure off of Cole Caulfield. But uh, I think there's an argument to be made as well with the power play. The Canadians are not, uh, I mean, one, they're not at full strength with the amount of bodies that are injured to them. But with the way their power play looks, maybe they're not necessarily getting the ideal lineups that they have because of some of those injuries. Yeah, I think Mike Hoffman's going to be a big deal for that power play because he adds what they like to do, which is score from a distance, right? He's one of the few guys in the league who seems to consistently manage to find ways to score from not necessarily outside the slot, but the edge of the slot, which is not a high danger scoring position, especially for forwards. It's more where you want your D to pinch down into. But uh, he manages to do it relatively consistently, and, you know, that's something this team just, they just don't like getting to the middle, especially getting the puck through. And I think we have to give some credit to the Maple Leafs PK, because they were so aggressive in this game. But at the same time, you have to recognize that it's easy to be that aggressive on the puck carrier when there's no movement. And that's been a a hallmark of the Canadians' power play for years now, is that it's kind of static, Guys stand where they're slotted and they don't move around a lot. They don't create chaos. All the best power plays in the league, you see guys switching positions. You know, like I think of 
the Capitals power play of the their prime years where, you know, like Carlson would shoot sometimes. Yeah, for sure. And Ovi was the primary guy, but it's not like they were su- stuck in their own positions. They would switch constantly, you know, and just that little switch of where who's going to be where creates uncertainty for the penalty killers. And I just don't see that level of creativity from the Montreal Canadiens. And I, I just wonder, is it the kind of players that they value don't have that kind of creativity? Because I don't really believe that with a guy like Nick Suzuki or a young kid like Cole Caulfield or even Jeff Petrie, who likes to go wander around the zone. So is it an organizational philosophy that they're so risk averse that they just want to stick in their spots and they take being bad on the power play as like a worthy sacrifice to not allow shorthanded goals? I mean, I would hope not, because I, I think the power play is a is a is a golden opportunity to see the Canadians or any other really good team be creative with the offensive weapons uh, at their disposal. And it's not as if the Canadians don't have players offensively who aren't able to to provide, especially when it comes to the man advantage. So, yeah, I, I think I would like to see the Canadians be a little bit more dynamic when it comes to that. And again, uh, I think it just needs to get to a point where they're able to at least enter the zone, like Jeff Petrie even. Uh, I thought he had a bit of a struggle of a game tonight, especially when it came to, you know, establishing the power play. Chris Weidman was able to get some time as well. But one thing with the Canadians, they're going to have to live with the fact that uh, defensively and, and with the giveaways that he has, they're going to have to live with that to a certain extent as well. So the, the Canadians, in terms of their personnel, they need to ensure that the personnel is the right one set up for those power plays. And they should have enough weapons at their disposal to do so. But. Yeah, I, I think for their sake, they need to do everything they can to continue to be dynamic, whether it's just continuing to move the puck around and making sure it gets into that bumper spot or having guys skate around and, and move around just to confuse the penalty kill. They need to do something to be a lot more dynamic against these penalty killing units. Yeah, it like something's got to give here. And it, we saw them replace their power play coach last season, and there was like that little bump when Alex Burroughs came in and they talked about doing the right things, uh, setting up that controlled chaos of like every wherever the puck is positioned you have like three set plays essentially that you can divert to so teams are always caught off guard they don't know what you're going to do but outside of those first few games we never really saw it they just went back to what was expected and i think that a lot of people canadians fans in particular expected after a summer off and a long training camp and preseason that we would see some different looks on this power play it's one game we can't judge too harshly but it didn't look good. <laughs> it just didn't look good. When Mitch Marner took that tripping penalty in the third period, which was a horrible play, and I know that Leafs fans were saying it was a dive, but when you stick your stick into the back of someone's knee when they're on their edges, they're going to fall. And at that point in the game, killing a penalty, it was just a boneheaded play by Marner. When you do that, you expect to pay the pun- like pay a punishment, and the Canadians just let them off easy. I, just this added note too, like not only on his edges, like Chris Weidman clearly trying to turn a corner here. Like yeah. I, I think nine times out of ten, if any of us are in that same situation, we get a stick to the back of our legs, we're gonna fall too. So I, I did not understand why people consider that to be a dive. But yeah, when you're in a situation like that where you have not just anybody taking a penalty, but you have Mitch Marner, who say what you want about his playoff performance, he's still a star in his National Hockey League and, and, and a key player for the Toronto Maple Leafs. The Montreal Canadiens need to take advantage of that. And once they weren't able to take advantage of that, that really hurt their chances at them getting an opportunity to win this game. It absolutely did. Uh, so I want to do shout out to Robert Malloy in the comments who's doing the moderation for, for this stream. I really appreciate him sticking around for 
for tonight, and uh, hopefully in the future we'll always have somebody modding, and uh, you never know when uh, the stream's going to get botted, because it happens all the time on YouTube streams, but uh, appreciate okay. appreciate uh, the work of the mods, and uh, shout out to everyone watching the stream, obviously, of course. Uh, just to note, the stream is about one minute behind what we're actually saying on our end, so if I'm not answering a question or something, or not replying, that's why. <laughs> you know, I might be a minute behind. But uh, we really appreciate you sticking around with us. We're going to move on from the power play here and get to some of the flow of the game. The, the game started up. I was surprised that Toronto didn't come out a little bit more hungry after the way that they talked about how their training camp went. And Jake Muzzin talked about the anger that uh, they came into training camp with. The Canadians really had them on their heels with those quick transition plays in the first 10 minutes. And it was the power plays for the Leafs that really took them out of it and allowed Toronto to retake control of the game. Jack, what did you see from the Canadians that allowed them to have that hop in their step at the beginning of the game there? So the, uh, the, the one thing that I, that I saw really clearly was that, that first goal, that one nothing goal. And so Jake Muzzin was carrying the puck up the right side. It was essentially a four on three for the Leafs. And then they try to make a play at the blue line. So Jake Muzzin tried to go under the stick, kind of, there was a small area, two on one, that he, he could try to find a controlled entry. And then um, I forget who the Montreal player was, but um, he went stick on puck and then the play went the other way for Anderson. And then eventually there was a two on one that, that he, you know, he hit that seam pass to drew him. And this is like, Toronto likes to play with the puck. They play a possession game. so. Early in the game, you're a little bit jittery. It's your first time playing against uh, playing against anybody kind of at you know at this pace. You're in front of your home crowd. If you play more of a skill game, then either you're going to be over aggressive or under aggressive. And, and we saw both at, in the early moments. And that's when, like you know, the Habs, they're more about puck pressure and dump and chase and pressuring the puck and taking time and space away. And they started really well and that's how they got to one nothing in the game, right? Like Toronto was still finding themselves. Yeah, and obviously in the middle point of the of the game and most of the second period as well, it seems like the Maple Leafs kind of found, they were like, okay, we are better than these guys. And they just really took it to the Canadians. I, I, I do wonder if there's something to be found with the Canadians at the early point of that game because it's kind of been the way that they've played for the last few seasons is that if they can't get off to a really uh like they always come out of the barrel just hop it right they're they shoot out of a cannon to start a game and if they can't pile up a couple of goals it seems like the rest of the game is just like they feel like they're behind and things get away from them and it, not so much last season but i think it was the season before they were like notorious for blowing third period leads it happened all the time and a lot of the blame was placed on carry price some of it for good reason but there is something about the way this team plays that it seems like if they can't take over early on, they either lose confidence in their ability to score or they just fold. Yeah, but the, the thing that I noticed in that first period is that off the hop, they were able to get that chance early on that led to that little like mini scramble and, and Brick Kulak was able to get a chance amongst some of the other guys in. And they, at one point they had an eight to three shot advantage. And then after that, it just Toronto just woke up and they kind of took over the game from there, from the end of the 
from the, I guess, partway through the first period, pretty much all the way to another partway through the second period. It was like 9-9 in terms of shots to end the, the, the first period. And then it took them until Toronto had about five or six shots on net. And then they uh, gave up their first penalty of the night where the Montreal Canadiens were able to get shots on net. And they actually got two. And they weren't necessarily the highest quality ones. And, they, and then it took them a little bit longer for them to get a shot at five on five. Uh, with the way that this was looking for the Montreal Canadiens, and, and Andrew, I think you're, you're right in your analysis. There have been games where the Canadiens will start off kind of hot and they'll get their chances in. But if they're not able to capitalize on some of those and they're not able to put their team, the, their opposing team in a hole early on, that other team eventually finds a way to wake up. And it's a lot harder for the Canadians to kind of play from behind the eight ball. Uh, we we know that, uh, well, obviously we we're coming off a, a, a postseason run for the Canadians where they showed they've been able to come back when down in a series. Uh, but they, we've seen it in the regular season a lot where if they're not able to, to get off to a great start, they find they're not really able to sustain that uh, pressure that they'll start off with in a game for an entire for the entirety of 60 minutes. So I think it, I think the fact that they weren't able to leave that first period uh, up, you know, two nothing or three nothing, uh, which would have been a perfect start for any team. But for a team like the Canadians with the start that they had, I think they would have loved it if they would have had at least two goals to start within the first like 10 minutes of this game. Yeah, I think a lot of credit has to go to Jack Campbell at the beginning of that game. And I thought that uh, it was a bit of a goalie battle towards the like second and third period. Uh, Jake Allen played pretty darn well overall. But, uh, I think he did too. He had that. He has a tendency to be a little bit leaky, right? Is The first half of the game, shots were kind of getting through. There was, I think, a Willie Nylander deflection that went through his pads and then went just wide of the net. And... You have to kind of expect that from your backup goaltender a little bit. Uh, Allen is a former starting goaltender, but he's kind of struggled whenever he's been asked to be a starting goaltender. He's a guy who is more of a 1B, and as much as you could expect from Jake Allen, I think he gave the kind of performance you want from a guy in his situation in this game. But because there is some... Like, weakness in his game, we'll say. Uh, some consistency issues over the years. Uh, some over-pushes side-to-side, maybe reacting a little bit too much. And his rebound control is not what we're used to watching with Carey Price. Are we worried at all about him taking over this starting role over the next 30-plus days while Price is recovering from injury and in the player assistant program? Um, Just my thinking off of what I saw... I didn't think I was particularly – I think if I were the Canadians looking at Jake Allen, I think he's the least of the worries compared to the power play and the offensive output personally. Uh, William Nylander beat Jake Allen on a really good shot in the third period. I mean, that's warranted enough for him to give you know the Canadians one of these and, and his boys uh, one of these little hand gestures uh, as I, for everyone listening, I guess, uh, kind of tried to do the little fancy hand move there. I know I'm describing this pretty badly, but the point is, is that William Nylander put together a really great shot past uh, Jake Allen. And that first goal that he allowed in the game, that's a result of some traffic in front of the net. I think that I'm trying to remember if that went off of, J- of um, Jake Evans uh, while he was trying to block that shot. And there's some guys in front of Jake Allen as well. Not the easiest uh, shot to see from that vantage point. And that's I think that's also going to be a theme for this team going forward is the amount of traffic that's in front of the net, in front of Jake Allen or Carey Price or, or Sam Altumbo, whoever's in there, 
We know how Shea Weber has been has been uh, influential for the Canadians at the back end when it comes to trying to clear the front of the net or ensuring that if players are going to go to the front of the net, they are going to feel pain when they're there. Uh, so I'm, in, I'm it's it's going to be intriguing to see how many uh, opposing players are going to be in front of the net, take some liberties, take opportunities to deflect pucks past the goaltender because the defense not the same as it was when Shea Weber is there. And I think the Leafs were able to exploit that in some ways tonight. Absolutely. Uh, let's move on from Jake Allen for a minute. Uh, Jack, I'm going to ask you about Jonathan Drouin, who is clearly one of the better stories for the Montreal Canadiens coming out of this game, scoring in his first game back, busting that crazy goal slump going back to last season. And I would say looking pretty good in this game. Uh, his underlying numbers were solid, but just looking at uh, the kind of plays he was making, his uh, strategies of uh, puck retrieval, how he meshed with Josh Anderson, what what were your thoughts on Joe Joe Drew in this game? Uh, did you see enough good things to think that he's figured things out all, all, all around the way that he started last season before things went off for him, or is this uh, is there still pretty glaring weaknesses in Drew's game? I just think with players like that, it, it, it's all about understanding what good is. So what I mean is. You know, obviously for him, when, when he played in juniors with Halifax, he could do whatever he wanted. Right? He, he could ha- he could carry the puck, uh, skate up and down the ice, you know, create exits and entries and scoring chances by himself. And um, at this level, he can't do that anymore. And when I work with players uh, like him, offensive players on an individual basis, whether, you know, they're 15 years old, whether they're playing uh, juniors, whether they're playing the NHL, one of the the key metrics that we look at is how many puck touches you have per game, which is the, the simplest thing, right? And um, what what I would say is, if you can finish a game with thirty five or forty touches, I don't care where those touches happen, you're going to have a good game. You're going to most likely have a multi point game. Uh, if you finish the game with thirty touches, you know you, you might have a goal or an assist. It'll be a fairly good game. And then if you end the game with twenty touches. Uh, you are going to feel terrible. Like you're not going to feel, you know, in rhythm. You're not going to feel like you had a good game. You're not going to feel confidence. So with Durant, it's simply a matter of how often can he touch the puck? Because for a player like that with a lot of natural talent, like every time he touches the puck, it's an opportunity for him to manipulate everybody else on the ice. So if he's touching the puck once a shift, that's not enough. Uh, he's got to touch it three, four, five times a shift to really assert himself. So really, you know, as simple as that metric is, that's the entire story with a player like that. Did you find he was getting enough puck touches tonight? Um, I, I mean, for as long as he's been a hab, like he's always been a little bit underwhelming in that aspect. And two things that I would say is, first of all, I think, on some pucks, he's maybe he puts too much pressure on himself to really find that perfect play as opposed to just a continuation play to a teammate. And then the second thing is I just find that off the catch, he's not able to create as much separation as someone, let's say, like Caulfield or Nylander or Matthews. Um, you know, like he kind of catches the puck like in front of him or between his feet, and then it's it's more difficult for him to escape off that first touch yeah that makes sense all right let's move on a little bit from the canadians i know it's a canadian show but we've got to talk about their opponent a little bit 
And it's been pointed out by a friend of the show, Justin Fisher, that Pierre Engvall is in your uh, profile picture there, Jack. So let's talk about Pierre Engvall a little bit, who <laughs> got a lot of criticism last year uh, from not only fans, but uh, doesn't see, wasn't really trusted by the coaching staff at certain points. He had an absolute whale of a game tonight. I thought him and Kasha were incredible, and aside from William Nylander, probably the best players in this game. So I was go so, ahead. Yes, uh, well, Pierre Engvall, player Noel, uh, really happy to see him have success. So the year that I coached for Marley is that's uh, 2019, 2020. Uh, he came into camp. He 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 plays first. No, sorry, he plays third overall in like the fitness um, component of training camp. So always one of the fittest guys. Um, six foot four, you know, big reach. Uh, you know, skates like the wind. So why hasn't he done more? Well, you know, simply, simply put, once in a while, he'll make a questionable read. Like he made one, you know, at the end of the game tonight. But really, like all the things are there for him to be an impact NHL player. It's just when you get to that level, uh, let's say if you look at a player like Nick Suzuki, doesn't have the size that Engvall has, doesn't have the speed, doesn't have the reach, but a better player. Why? Because um, in terms of his play selection, in terms of his reads, Suzuki is on another level, level really. So once you get to, to, to the NHL, like that's kind of where, uh, where the separation is between a bottom six player, which I think, you know, Pierre is and a top six player, which Suzuki is. But if you look at kind of like that hardware aspect where the raw tools, you know, Engvall has it all. It's just, um, you know, the, the, the consistency of the decision-making or the, the quality of, you know, how can you put your your skill set to use? Um, I wanted to just kind of follow up with a question. I know it's not supposed to be me asking the question. It's supposed to be Berkshire. But I remember on Twitter uh, during the game, I forget which hockey media member tweeted this, but I mean, not only did they praise Pierre Engvall, they were saying it was probably the most engaged game he's played maybe ever since he's joined the Toronto Maple Leafs. In, in your experience with working with this player, uh, what's it like in terms of his engagement level and, and his compete level? Like, what's it been like dealing with that with him? Is he is he known to be a guy who could be more engaged in games? Like, what is that like? So, so I think that the thing that that that's difficult for Pierre is as, as a big guy who skates really well and who's really noticeable just by, you know, being on the ice, you kind of have a higher expectation of what he can do, right? So because he's the, he's the tallest, he's the, the the best skater, like you think that he's going to be in on every play, which he isn't. So, you know, I, I've personally never really had an issue with Pierre's effort level. Um, you know, he, he's he might not be the most creative player or he might not be the player who maybe has the best vision, but you know, he does what he can all the time. And, and it's just a matter of expectation that's maybe higher for him than for other people. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, every time you get a player with a lanky frame and has that those raw skills, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Joe Colburn, right? Who is a fine NHL player for a long time, but more was always expected out of him. And some, some guys just don't actually have that more to give. I think that uh, Yoel Armia, in a lot of ways, is that kind of player for the Montreal Canadiens, where 
there are days where you look at him out there and he looks like Mario. You know, like the skills that he's able to flash, you look at him in practice and he'll go like one handed and just shoot a puck through the camera hole with like, like it's nothing. And then you watch him during a game sometimes and it's just incredibly frustrating. But some players just are that guy. They can never get it to that next level and you have to just accept what they're good at and, you know, they'll still bring you positive aspects in a game. It's just hard not to be frustrated by what you think that they should be bringing. And I think that's an issue that a lot of us have in player evaluation. Nobody's perfect. But uh, Engvall is one of those guys where I think that he's going to be really valuable for Toronto, especially this year. He looks like he's got a little bit of confidence and he meshes well with his line mates. And that's an interesting set of players they've got in Toronto right now. We've got a few questions here that I was going to pivot to. And I think we'll, we'll just go with like a quick yes or no answer here. We'll start with Julian and then go to Jack. After tonight's performance, do you go with Jake Allen again tomorrow? Um, that's a really good question. You have the Rangers on Saturday. Uh, I'd give the nod to Sam Montembeau, actually. Uh, and it's not anything against Jake Allen's performance tonight. I thought he did a pretty decent job, all things considered. But I think considering the amount of games the team has going forward, uh, again, so... Tonight, they had the game against the Leafs. Tomorrow, they're in Buffalo. Saturday, they're back at home against New York Rangers. Why not give Montembeau the start tomorrow night and then let Allen start at home on Saturday? Jack? Uh, I, I would agree with Julian just because I think the burden is on you to say, you know, why a goalie should play a back-to-back. Normally, the... Uh, the, the industry practice is if, if it's a back-to-back, then both goalies will get a game. Uh, it, you know, it's so early, early in the season, there, nobody's really kind of taken over that starter spot just yet. So let Sam have a game and see see what happens. I mean, it, it probably also helps that it's Buffalo tomorrow night, right? So, like, the, the expectation is a win no matter who you start in goal. It has to be if the Canadians have any hope of trying to push for a playoff spot this year. They're not, they can't afford to lose games against the Sabres or teams like the Sabres who are very clearly in a tanking position. So it makes sense to sit Jake Allen for tomorrow and let him rest up for Saturday. I think that if anything, there's a lot more confidence in Jake Allen than maybe there was uh, heading into this start of the season. He played really well tonight, but uh, okay, we're going to go on to the next question here, which is, we've got a lot of questions about Alexander Romanov. And I know Jack's answer to this already. We've got a, a couple pretty cheeky questions asking, uh, is Romanov even NHL ready? And I think we'll go to Jack first, because I think we know where he's going to go with it. I was about to it. say, you should go to Jack first. <laughs> yeah, we'll go to Jack first, because he's got some spicy takes on Romanov. Okay, well, well, the, the answer to is Romanov NHL ready? Well, yes, because he's playing in the NHL and he's played there for the last, what, 50 games? And, like, it's not disastrous, right? He's just, to, to paraphrase Sheldon Keefe in that Leafs All or Nothing series, like, he's just been really vanilla. Like, I don't see play driving. I don't see, you know, power play production or even strength production. I don't see, um, you know, you know, the physicality is there, but it's not like people are going to go out of their way to avoid him on the ice, right? So what does he actually do well? And it, in a sense, that to come back to that whole expectation thing, like for a second round pick, which I believe he was, like 
it, it's not bad. Like if you have like a number five or number six defenseman out of your second round pick, that's kind of like above average return on investment because most second round picks don't hit. But it, it's just, you know, and, and it's nothing against him, but he's just made out to be, you know, this untouchable future franchise cornerstone, which I don't really see any evidence of that so far. Um. All first off, I think Romanov tonight. I didn't necessarily think he played all that well. Uh, the cross checking bounty he took in the first period sticks out to me a lot. I think it was a giveaway at some point, and unfortunately, I don't have my notes in front of me. But there were a few mistakes that he made tonight that I thought were not necessarily what I expected him to do. Considering not only to the start of his career last year uh, did he look okay, he looked as someone who didn't make that many mistakes. And I think those first few games that first half of the year where he wasn't making all that many mistakes, that will stand in my mind for me as to what I think Alexander Romanov can be. Uh, I also wonder in terms of the fact that he has that quickness and he has that ability to play, to drive plays and, and, and handle the puck. Is it a question of, of, of opportunity? Is it a question of the Canadians feeling that he's not ready to necessarily do that? Are the Canadians, do the Canadians feel comfortable with the idea of having him handle the puck with the man advantage. I mean, they, they saw Jeff Petrie and, and Chris Weidman get a handle on that today and it didn't really result into anything. Might be too soon to even throw that idea out. But I, I wonder, uh, while to Jack's point, yes, he does. He does look a bit vanilla. How much of that uh, happens to be with the way that the Canadians are using it? Because he's able to be physical, but I would like to see him in more situations where he's able to handle the puck and drive offense. Yeah, and I think this is something that, like, Jack talked about even before Romanov made the NHL, that his decision-making is is kind of vanilla to begin with, is that uh, it's not necessarily that the Canadians pushed this style of play on him. I think they drafted him because of the decisions that he makes, and he's still a young kid, so he still makes some risky decisions that they get upset with, and you saw in the playoffs that he sat or, like, didn't play much in games. That makes sense. Uh, but I think that my issue with Romanoff is not necessarily that he's bad right now or that he's going to be bad or that he won't be in an NHL or is I just don't see the high level upside that the Canadians build when they were kind of hyping him up last season. There was some level of it at the beginning of the year. I liked the way he took four checks and kind of shook them off and was able to clear the defensive zone. He doesn't really do that right now. I don't know if it's a lack of confidence, but I'm just not seeing the high-level transition plays that create scoring chances. I'm not seeing his touches in the offensive zone bringing offense. He's not, like, keeping the puck in play. He just... His defensive reads aren't so good that he seems like he's a lock for a, a roster spot, even to me. So it's just one of those guys where you look at him, you're like, okay, maybe you're an NHL player. You might have a long career, but are you just the guy that slots in when there's an injury versus a part of a top four of uh, of a contending team and if he's not going to project into the top four that's a big issue for the canadians because they have some defensive prospects coming but nobody's a sure thing you know and they need some sure things and they need them now because their defense is just rough <laughs> but, but uh, at the same time like it, it, this kind of speaks to a big problem with the Montreal Canadiens over the last few years and Yes, Perikok and Yemi was victim to this in that the Canadians might expect a lot too soon from some of these young players. Alexander Romanov is entering his second season in the National Hockey League, 
And uh, he has a lot of time before he could eventually ascend into an everyday top four NHL defenseman. And considering the fact that uh, the, the injuries that are plaguing the Canadians right now, that includes the Joel Edmondson, normally in, in the lineup that we see right now, it's probably Jeff Petrie and, and Joel Edmondson playing together, and not Brett Kulak and Jeff Petrie playing together. And as a result of that, there is that chain reaction that sees Romanov at the pairing that he has. Uh, yeah, I think that also could play a role in in, in his deployment too. And, and the fact that uh, the Canadians might want a lot from him now, you know, in any other situation, you have him on your third pairing, you let him continue to get a few minutes here and there. You shelter him a little bit more. Get pull him with a, a defensively responsible uh, player next to him, so that way he's able to handle the puck and make those mistakes. But if the Canadians are in a position where they want a lot out of him now, it could be a lot too soon for a guy of his caliber. Yeah, I, I'm with you there. The expectations. I mean, in training camp, it seemed like he was going to ride with Petrie at the beginning, right? They wanted to put Kulak down on the third pair to kind of spread their defense out a little bit. They pulled away from that real quick when the real game started, and Kulak was up with Petrie for most of the game. So that uh, short-lived experiment in training camp and preseason it, it probably isn't going to be tried anytime soon. And for the Canadians, hopefully Edmondson is back to help them sort things out relatively soon. I saw a few questions in the chat about Josh Anderson and why he's always falling down. Uh, I can answer that relatively simply. He's the guy from Mighty Ducks who can't stop. Super fast skater, <laughs> and he skates faster than he can handle the edges on his skates. So he's down all the time, and sometimes he doesn't aim his uh, skating very well and goes right into another player, or the boards, or the net. Uh, he plays with reckless abandon. I don't think Anderson's a diver. Do you guys think Anderson's a diver? Uh, I don't get that sense, particularly that he's a a diver i uh, i know i i don't necessarily think that way I, I think he's able to hold his own and i think he's somebody who you know if something happens you know he'll go down uh you know if he's hurt obviously but i, I don't necessarily think he's earned that reputation as a diver compared to other nhl players who have earned that moniker i don't necessarily think of josh anderson as a diver all right, so we've got uh, some fun announcements to end the podcast out. But before I do that, I want to make everybody understand how awesome my two guests are here tonight. All right, so Julian McKenzie of the Chris Johnston Show with Julian McKenzie at SDPN is a killer. And he's been a killer since he was in college. He's a rising star in this industry. And if you are not following him on every social media, everything that he does, reading him in The Athletic, you are missing out majorly. And Jack, former coach, or I should say assistant coach, with the Toronto Marlies, uh, former assistant coach with the McGill Martlets, is a rising star in hockey. You can check out his books. I've got links in the description for Jack's books. He's got Hockey Tactics 2021. He's also got other books that he's written recently as well. Uh, Jay Hockey, or Jay Han, hkygumroad.com and we have a promo code for the people who are watching this show game over mtl and you can get 5 bucks off any purchase at of jack's ebooks seriously check them out every book that you read every chapter that you read that jack's written you will learn something about hockey that you can apply to your analysis if you're a writer you can apply to your analysis if you're a fan you will it'll change the way you watch a game today uh, heading into this game, Jack mentioned that in the preseason, John Tavares was forcing plays uh, because he's like, you know, getting back up to speed. And I looked for that. 
during the game. In the first period, three or four different times, John Tavares was forcing plays to try to create offense, and he created turnovers for his team. Jack knows things. You gotta you gotta watch this guy. You gotta pay attention to this guy. Jack is super smart, man. Just listening to him talk his last few minutes, it's like, yeah, the dude is super smart, and he's in the positions that he's in in hockey for a reason. Absolutely, and I thank you both for coming. But before we let you go, we got a couple of spicy announcements here. Uh, first of all, I'm going to be back on uh, not a stream, but another podcast with Julian tomorrow morning because we're going to mm. do the Hockey Inside Out show for the week. I'm filling in for Jess Rusnak, which is going to be super fun, and that's going to be recording tomorrow morning, so you got some more content to listen to or watch with us, but more importantly, I'll say, because it's my show, <laughs> November 13th. Fine. I'll let that slide. I'll let that slide, <laughs> yes. Yes. I'll keep that in mind when we record tomorrow, Berkshire. <laughs> All right. <laughs> keep it in mind, Julian. We can... We can spar on different shows. We'll take it oh, all yeah. the way across every network in Canada, all right? Every platform. <laughs> every platform, everything we got. But November 13th, to show how insane we're going to be on this show, Julian and I, and a guest to be announced, after the Red Wings game, are going to do the Hot Ones gauntlet for you guys while doing a post game. I'm very afraid. The sauces are ordered. The wings are are ready to be cooked. I'm going to die on stream, and we're doing this for you guys. It's going to be super fun. So, November 13th, I'm just going to make sure that that's the right date. Yeah, November 13th, circle that date in your calendar. You've got to be here. Everybody who's still with us at the end of this podcast, you're the special ones, you're the first ones to know. Julian and I are going to die on November 13th. Please don't let me die. Uh, Please, uh, or at least tell CJ I love him. Oh man, CJ. You think CJ would do the Hot Ones gauntlet? I think I bet would. you he'd crush it. He'd crush it and he wouldn't even react. I, I don't know how he is with spicy food. Maybe that's worth asking him on the podcast. But like, I think if, I think he'd be down. I think he'd be like, you know what, man? Let, let's just do it. There's no rules. Let's just, let's just chow down on these wings. I don't know how far he'd go in the gauntlet. Uh, I don't even know how far I'd go in the gauntlet. To be honest, I'm anticipating that by like number three, I'm just going to like, be like, oh, I can't do this anymore. Ugh. But like, I, I think CJ would definitely be into it. You guys ever do that hot wings uh, challenge at McKibben's, like the, the the ghost pepper one? Never. No, I'm I'm very much a mid level spice guy. Like, I I love jerk chicken, right? And I can take pretty spicy jerk chicken. But I actually had I had a bur- burrito from Tejano that just had like crazy spice on it earlier this week. And I almost had to tap out and I was like, man, is this Hot Ones Gauntlet a horrible idea? But I am absolutely determined to make it through. And yes, for the chat who said that I'll be red like a tomato, yes, I will be red like a tomato. I will be sweating all over the place. I will probably get the hiccups. It'll be a disaster, but it'll be a fun disaster. What the hell are you putting us through? I know. It's going to be fun, though. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. No. All right, so that's all we have for you today for the first episode, the debut of Game Over Montreal. Thanks so much to everyone who tuned in. Thanks to my guests, Julian McKenzie, Jack Hahn. Both of these guys are going to be back on this show at various points throughout the season. We're really excited. I am sorry for the background noise coming from my mic. It's my computer fan is going crazy from the streaming and it's being picked up on the mic. That'll be fixed hopefully by the next episode. 
I so I really do apologize for you having to listen to that on the podcast version. Hoping to edit that out, but uh, thanks for sticking with us on YouTube, and we'll see you tomorrow night as the Habs face Buffalo and probably come out with a win. 